Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. In our interviews, we often take a look at new laws or how our legal system is impacted by cutting-edge technologies. Today, we'll be doing something very different. We'll take a fresh look at something fundamental to our legal system and our lives, the concept of ownership. Hello, and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today, we're joined remotely by Professor Michael Heller of Columbia Law School, someone who has thought and written much about this topic. Professor, welcome to Talks on Law. It's great to be here, Joel. Today, we're talking about ownership. You have a book coming out on the topic. It's called Mine. Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. It's co-authored with Jim Salzman, who's a professor of law at UCLA Law School. And we're so excited. The book is actually out now. Professor, today we're talking about ownership and how it's justified. For most of us, we think, well, it's obvious, but, but is it? Well, let me give you an example. We go through hundreds of ownership conflicts every day. Now, think about the last time you were on an airplane. Did you lean back? When we do studies on this, it turns out that half of the people say, if the button is there, I can recline. And the other half amazingly say, no, the space you know, in front of me is there for my laptop and for my knees. There's no reclining unless I give permission. That's actually an ownership conflict. And people mostly work it out, not always, but you think, but wow, this conflict is on me. There's no law here. And that's true. There isn't. What there is there is some really sophisticated ownership engineering by the airlines. They're the ones that control the space. And they use one of the most important tools of ownership design that your listeners may not know of. And that tool is what we call ownership ambiguity, deliberate ambiguity. They actually have a rule, but they won't tell you. And the reason that they won't tell you is that they want to be able to sell that wedge of space twice on every seat on every flight. Well, we'll be talking today about uh, some of these ambiguities and some of the arguments behind it. Why don't we start with getting the arguments for ownership on the table? Yeah, so we think about rocket engineering and it puts people on the moon, but people rarely realize that ownership is engineered just as intensely. There's only a handful of simple stories, six of them, that everyone uses to claim everything in the world. Savvy governments and businesses mix and match those very small handful of stories to steer you to do what they want. Why don't we walk through these stories? I'm trying to think you know, intuitively what, what they might be. I mean, one is certainly, I grabbed it first, so it's mine. So first come, first serve is one of the six basic stories that everyone uses to claim everything. We use this from when we're little kids. So you think about like two kids fighting in a playground. One says, mine, I had it first. The other says, no, I'm holding on to it. I had this experience with my kids so many times. What they're using there are two of the simple stories. I had it first, first in time is one, and I'm holding on to it. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. That's a second. A third one is labor. It's mine because I worked for it. You reap what you sow. This goes back to the Bible. You reap what you sow is the intuition behind why we award patents to inventors and copyrights to artists. The fourth story is what we call attachment. It's mine because it's attached to something mine. So for example, when you have a deed of paper to your home, that's just a two-dimensional sheet. 
How much is attached up? Can you keep out airplanes? Well, not anymore. How about drones? That's an open question. Or down from your land? Can you frack or drill for water? What's attached to your land is the fourth story. I suppose we have two stories left. Self-ownership. Our bodies ourselves. It's mine because it comes from my body. Now, that story has a deep and complicated history, a terrible history, the history of slavery. So our thoughts today about that one are informed by that history. The sixth and final story is family. The last story is when wealth is on the move. And wealth is really on the move at birth and at death, at marriage and divorce. Those six stories are the stories everyone uses to claim everything in the world. Why don't we move a little bit into the legal realm? One of the fundamental cases in the United States that helped settle some forms of ownership was Pearson v. Post. What happened in that case? Every law student learns this case. This is a fox that a hunter is chasing around on a beach. And he chases the fox around until it gets really tired. The last second, some interloper comes in, Pearson, kills the fox and takes it away. And that becomes a lawsuit over who gets the fox, the guy who was chasing it around and tired it out, or the guy who came in finally for the kill. And that case establishes one of the most foundational principles in American property law, which has to do with how we define what it means to be first in time. Can I try my, my amateur ability to apply your, your stories here? Please, this is great. This is you're you're on call, Joel. What's the what's how does this work? Okay, so you could argue that the one who had been hunting it, he's got that fruits of my labor argument, whereas Pearson has the possession, and he might have some bit of argument that the fruits of his labor is as well, since he did the final swing of the axe, if you will. That's exactly right, and that sense of labor and possession, they they are two of other stories, and they both inform our understanding of what it means to be first. So the way the court decided is that the first to actually mortally wound, the first to actually capture the resource is the owner. So Pearson wins because he does what we view as most productive at the time, which was killing foxes. And the rule that comes out of this case, the so-called rule of capture, was later extended to be the rule under which people claim oil, water, gas, minerals. Professor, that was the concept of who's first. We always hear that possession is nine-tenths of the law. How does that actually bear out in our legal system? Well, possession is nine-tenths of the law is a super ancient principle. It goes back at least to the Code of Hammurabi from about 4,000 years ago, one of the earliest recorded legal codes. And in that code, it said that if I own land and you are on my land for enough time using it to say to farm, it becomes your land. Can you bring us a little more into, into today's world with the story about how possession affects ownership? Absolutely. So that the Pearson versus Post case, that was an early American case, 1805 in New York. But here's a very recent case. I don't know how many of your listeners remember Barry Bond when he was chasing his home run record. Wow, that was an exciting time. He was about to hit his 73rd home run and fans were ready. Uh, There's a guy named Popoff who was in the stands with his glove, ready to catch the ball. He knew where Bonds hit the ball. And when the ball actually went sailing towards him, he was ready. The ball hit the tip of his glove, but then he was swarmed by the crowd in the stands and knocked the ball loose. And it fell through the scrum. And a guy on the side, a guy named Patrick Hayashi, picked it up, held the ball up for the Jumbotron, waved it around. 
and claim the ball. So who's the owner? Is it the guy who first grasped it or is it the one who ended up with it after the, the scrum? Well, that's the million dollar question. And it was literally the million dollar question because the ball they thought was worth a million bucks. So what do we want to have count as first? Do we want it to be the effort or do we want it to be the final capture? For oil and gas, it's the final capture, like it was for the Fox. But the judge in this case got fancy. He brought in a bunch of law professors, so you know he wasn't going to get to the right outcome. <laughs> well, what was the argument? That there was an undue interference by the, the crowd that, that robbed him of his just rewards? So yeah, so you can think of this sort of like pass interference in football, where the ball is placed where the receiver was knocked down and you know, it was interfered with in the game. But this wasn't football. This is just random people in, in the baseball stands. So what should the rule there be? What the judge did is he brought in a bunch of professors and they decided to split the ball, basically to split the value, auction it, and each gets half. Sort of like a Solomonic solution, but with cash at the end instead of a split baby. What had happened there is that each had done something useful. Popov had slowed the forward momentum of the ball, but then got knocked around. Hiyashi had actually done the final capture, like Pearson with the Fox, which is also useful. And he was perfectly innocent. So what the judge did is had the ball auctioned and the proceeds split. I don't think that's the right answer, but it's the kind of answer you get to when you're looking at what we call ex post reasoning in law. Judges have one, of, have one basic tool that they use to decide cases, a really important one that people often overlook, which is the difference between ex post, like these two people, Hayashi and Popov before me, what's fair as between them? That's like one basic approach to judging. And that's what the judge did in this case. And the other very basic approach that we have is what we call ex ante reasoning. Like what rule that we create will actually lead to the best consequences going forward. And I think there's a better rule going forward than splitting the ball. So you're with, uh, you're a little more with Pearson v. Post. I'm actually not in this case. So in Pearson versus Post, the ball went to the final hunter. That was the most useful thing that could be we could achieve at that time was to encourage people to have really good hunting methods. But in the baseball stand, I had a different calculation. I want people like Popoff bringing their gloves to the stadium because I and many people like me are likely to get hit. About almost 2,000 fans a year are injured in the stands by flying baseballs. So I don't think in that case, we should reward the final person, Hayashi, who didn't really add any value except bending over and picking the ball up. If the reward goes to Popov, if we have an ex-ante rule, it actually could lead to decreased number of injuries. So in this case, I would go my ex-ante rule, my rule today looking forward, not justice between these two parties, not the ex-post rule, ex-ante, what I want is a rule that it makes Popov think, okay, I bring my glove, I'm going to get protected. Let's talk a little bit about possession now. Maybe we can use adverse possession as a way into this area of law. Sure. So let me give you a, a recent example of adverse possession. The Curlins, a family in Boulder, Colorado, had a, uh, decided to buy a piece of land for their retirement with a beautiful view of the Hardscrabble Mountains. The McLeans, their neighbors, actually a guy was a retired judge, started using part of the land for a rose garden and for a path. And over time, they grew pretty attached to it. So when the Curlins decided, okay, it's time to you know, cash out, it's time to settle into, settle into our retirement, the McLean said, no, 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 we've been actually using that land as a rose garden, and that land is ours. And a court actually awarded the land to the McLeans under this ancient doctrine of adverse possession. 
Now, the community flipped out. The judge, the McLeans, they actually got threats for exercising their legal rights. Possession is extremely powerful, but custom can be even more powerful. And the custom and norm in that community was that what the McLeans were doing was unneighborly. Professor, maybe we can take a step back and, and, and get a little more understanding of, of what was required or what the court validated in that case. Here, the Curlins, by the deed itself, owned the land. McLean was possessing it or putting in work on it. What was the legal test there? Well, the legal test is this I'm actually quiz my students on in law school all the time. What are the, what are the rules for adverse possession? The basic rule for adverse possession is if you use the land the way an ordinary user does, it's yours. There's a number of separate elements. It has to be open. has to be notorious. You have to actually enter onto the land. You have to exclusively use it for a certain period of time. You have to have a so-called claim of right, some notion that it's yours, that you're not acting under somebody else. But if you meet that list of uh, elements, what it really adds up to in practice is, are you using the land the way an ordinary owner would? And it varies by state, but in what type of time range are we talking about? Yeah, in some states, it's as short as uh, seven years and in, in others, it's as long as into the 20s. But uh, between 10 and 21 is pretty standard. Actually, after this case came down in Colorado, people were so mad that the Colorado legislature actually tightened up the requirements, made it harder for people to adversely possess land. Cases about this are actually fairly unusual, but if you ask a group of, say, 100 law students, how many of you have this happening in your backyard? Turns out 10 or 20 of them, surprisingly, when they think about it, realize, oh yeah, you know, I'm cutting across that path to get to the beach. Well, that's prescription. That's a way to get a property right. Or yeah, you know, my neighbor is using my driveway. Well, hold it, maybe that gives rise to a claim. So when we start talking about it, people say, that can never happen today. But when you think about it more deeply, it turns out it happens absolutely all the time. These cases rarely go to court because law, in my view, is substantially overrated. Almost all ownership disputes are settled informally. People just work things out. One in a thousand or one in a hundred thousand ever gets litigated. Overwhelmingly, people have these ownership disputes every day and we say, okay, you can use the Rose Garden for now, but eventually, you know, I'm going to take it back. And that's usually how people work things out. That was possession, Professor. Why don't we move on to the attachment to land or the attachment uh, justification? How about an example to get us started? Well, recently in Kentucky, actually in Bullock County, Kentucky, a guy named William Meredith was in his backyard and he sees a drone uh, fly over his backyard fence. It's actually quite high up. And he takes a shotgun and blasts it out of the sky. He says, this drone is trespassing. And he's, he's soon you know, arrested for wanton endangerment. But the judge throws the case out and says, yeah, when the drone flies over your backyard, that is trespassing. The space above your house is attached to your land. It is part of your land. And the drone can't go there. Now, that case raised a lot of national headlines because you don't really want suburban homeowners using shotguns to blast drones out of the sky, but it raises a really fundamental principle about ownership, which is what is attached to something that you already own. That is our third and one of our most important ownership stories. So is that still good law, Professor? Can, if you're at least in that area in Kentucky, can you make a, a legal claim to that drone space above your property? That decision was very harshly criticized and I don't believe it is good law. Although I'd be careful in that county uh, when you're flying a drone, 
because again, this because William Meredith was let off. But the general rule is absolutely up for grabs. So we know like your house is your castle. And we also know, for example, that you can't like use a surface air missile to shoot down an airplane over your house. At some point, there's a limit where your ownership runs out, like how much airspace is attached up, how much of resources down. This is very much up for grabs. And drones today are right at the cutting edge of this question. Every possible use is contested and up for grabs. That's true for air rights. But the recent example has to do with wind and solar power. Do you have the right unobstructed wind coming over your land? What happens if your neighbor puts a windmill upwind of you? Can they block you? Or can they grow trees that block your solar panels? And this is in contest really everywhere in the country. Um, but the notion, the basic notion here is the first order answer is uh, you can basically put up solar panels or put up windmills. And the reason is that those that new resource gets attached to owners of existing land. The attachment principle is actually the most important ownership principle that most people don't know of. It works often like a wealth magnet. It gives new resources like wind and solar uh, power potential to the owners of already existing resources. So in that way, is this one of the least progressive justifications for ownership? Well, it has this hidden quality of working like a wealth magnet. So in that sense, it is. We, we talk a lot in this country about wealth inequality, but we miss often the hidden ownership mechanisms through which wealth inequality really works. We know about race discrimination. We know about schooling disparities, but the attachment principle is underneath all of those quietly and inexorably attaching new resources to owners of existing property. That's the downside. But um, the attachment principle also has a very powerful upside. Most of the really effective tools we have to protect the environment arise from creative design of the attachment principle for the common good instead of for private benefit. How is the attachment principle used for conservation? Is that just by saying, you know, we own this land so you can't come and kill all the birds or you can't come and chop down trees? Exactly right. So, but in a somewhat subtle way. So here's how it works to use attachment to protect the environment. So the way you start out is forest dwellers in much of the world uh, see a tree. And the only value to them of that tree is if they chop it down, if they burn it, if they chop it and make farmland. So the tree is worth more chopped down than standing. So what a lot of attachment design does, a lot of cap and trade programs do, is they make it possible for forest dwellers to have a reason to leave the tree standing. They make trees worth more standing than they are chopped down. Those trees often don't belong to the forest dweller, but what we do is we treat them as if it is attached to the land that those people control. So we use as if attachment. We pretend that it is in order to create a mechanism to have often wealthy countries or companies pay for those forest dwellers not to chop the tree down. So when you, for example, buy a carbon offset, when you fly in an airplane, or when countries like China or Norway try to implement their uh, so-called cap and trade programs, what they're really doing is using a version of attachment design to make it profitable to protect the environment. Professor, you mentioned this hypothetical of a tree grower versus a solar panel owner getting into it over access to sunlight. Is there any actual case law on that? Yeah, so amazingly, this happened recently in Sunnyvale, California where Carolyn Bissett was like really attached to her redwood trees. Her neighbor, Mark Vargas, 
was an equally proud green who drove a Prius and he had solar panels. What happened though, was that her trees grew so tall that they blocked his solar panels. And in California at the time, that conflict, which is traditionally solved through nuisance law, the state decided that solar panels were so important that it was actually a, there was actually a criminal conviction for Carolyn Bissett for refusing to chop down her trees. I'm imagining there could have been quite a quite an SNL sketch on this where, what are you in for, uh, grew my redwood too long? Exactly. Uh, you know, and the parodies of the case and the outrage when Carolyn was convicted actually led California to back off a little bit on the harshness of its solar panel law. So they retreated to the point where if the trees were already pre-existing, they could stay. Staying on the subject of attachment, why don't we go to where the water meets the land? Here, does ownership extend into waterways? Does it extend into rivers or off into the ocean? Well, it can be any answer. So the attachment principle doesn't just work up uh, from your house and down to resources underneath. It also works out from the edge of your property. So this is a big issue in coastal states where beaches are eroding. Uh, and cities sometimes will put additional sand to stop the erosion. This happened actually in Destin, Florida. And the beach owners there got really upset. They weren't upset that the city protected their extremely valuable houses. They were upset because the city said, once we've put the sand on, this sand is gonna be available for the public. And that conflict in Destin actually went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Fascinating. So in that case, the city came in, spent hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, rejuvenating the beach or extending the beach off this private property. And then there's a debate, who owns that new beach? Well, the case went to the Supreme Court and the Destin wealthy beachfront owners ended up losing. The city was able to put the sand, protect their beach, and actually let the public come onto the beach and use it in front of the landowners. There was actually, it was an eight to zero decision. A quick break for those who are earning CLE MCLE credit for this interview. The code is 082316. Again, that's 082316. Back to the interview. Let's move into another one of the justifications. You mentioned that family ties and heredity are justifications that we've been relying on for millennia. Think back to the Bible, where you had primogenitor and you had Jacob tricking his father, Isaac, to, be, to get his older brother Esau's inheritance. In America today, it turns out we actually have two distinct legal systems for inheritance. Uh, one that most of us have to live under, it's actually quite harsh especially for people who don't make wills, which often is poorer people, people of communities of color. We have a completely separate, flexible system for the super wealthy, which makes, in many cases, tax paying actually voluntary. Maybe you can explain a little more what you mean by this harsh system and maybe provide an example as well. A hundred years ago, actually, African-Americans had acquired, a had worked incredibly hard in the 50 years after slavery ended to acquire farmland. And there were actually a million black farm families in America by the 1920s. This was a really important source of black wealth in this country. But in the last hundred years, 
African-American land ownership has dropped by 98%, 98%. A lot of that is due to racist violence and discrimination. That's no surprise. But there's an underlying family ownership story that many people don't know, which is that most African-American families in the South didn't make wills. They were wary, rightly, of the Southern white lawyer. So they didn't go to them. But when they died, what that meant is that their property, their farm, was governed by American inheritance law. And that background rule split the property among three or five or however many kids the farmer had, and then the next generation among three or five or seven more. So by uh, the 1970s or 80s, you had dozens or hundreds, or in some cases, thousands of partial owners. And with that kind of partial ownership, it's extraordinarily hard to manage the farm. You can't get a mortgage on a partial share. And what white lawyers in the South realized is they could buy a one one thousandth fractional share of that farm from an heir who had left, say, for Chicago, come back to that county in, say, Mississippi or North Carolina and force what's called a partition sale. So if you own property together, any one of the owners, any one of the thousand owners can force a sale of the whole. It's a cash sale on the courthouse steps and almost invariably the only people who showed up to buy were the white lawyers who had bought that fractional share. And using the intersection of American inheritance law with American partition law, we had the rapid destruction of African-American wealth in this country, almost completely invisibly through these partition sales. Sort of a divide and conquer approach. Absolutely. So that dismantling happens through what I call ownership gridlock. It's actually an ownership phenomena that I discovered some years ago, which turns out to apply to many different areas of the modern economy, where too many owners lead to the destruction or the destruction of wealth or of the resource. It happens in patent law with the ability to discover new drugs. It happens in telecom which with, for why our cell phones are slower than in Korea or Japan. Ownership gridlock has had devastating consequences for African-American wealth in this country. While that does seem extremely undesirable. You go the other direction with primogenitor, the the rule that had been the norm for centuries in, in Europe, and that's equally unfair. Absolutely. And that's one of the real challenges and opportunities for the law of ownership, which is that you have a lot of bad outcomes that are available, uh, but you also have the possibility for engineering good outcomes. So we started our conversation today by saying, by you know, understanding that ownership engineering is like rocket engineering, but it's you know much more accessible. And that's absolutely true for Black landowners. So a professor named Thomas Mitchell helped design a uniform partition of heirs property law, which has now been passed in most Southern states. And what that law does is it doesn't do primogenitor and it doesn't have partition sales. It lets farm families that want to stay on the land, it gives them a right of first refusal. It gives them time to assemble the financing. It makes it possible for them to actually bid at these auction sales. So it creates the tools to overcome ownership gridlock. Perhaps uh, 150 years too late, but... Exactly 150 years too late. We already have, we have fewer than 20,000 African-American farm families left from that original million. Professor, as we move to talk about the ownership rights or the ownership arguments over our person or our body, maybe you can set the stage. What are we talking about here? Self-ownership is the fifth, and it's a really fraught ownership story. 
our bodies ourselves. This is our most personal or most important. This is the core of who we are. And self-ownership has had a very difficult, terrible history in this country. So all self-ownership stories trace back to the original sin of American property law, which was slavery of African-Americans and the overcoming of that terrible, terrible heritage. So when we talk about self-ownership today, it's always with slavery in the backdrop. And part of what that means is that people tend to think about resources that come out of our bodies in a very, uh, as it were, on-off way, like a light switch. It's either on we can or no, we can't. So we think about, can you sell hair? Yes. Can you sell your kidney? No. And we have that sort of on-off approach for each of our bodily resources. But what that's meant is that we don't really have a very subtle or flexible or responsive system of self-ownership today in this country. If we thought of self-ownership more along the lines of a dimmer with a sacred at one end, where we say absolutely not, things that are more akin to slavery, and we thought of the other end as being the profane, things that we trade in markets like hair, where we have very little problem, maybe it's a spectrum. And if we set the dimmer at the right place, we can get the benefits of the market and we can have the sort of protection of our dignity that comes from the sense of the sacred. Why don't we take an example then? I'm, I'm thinking of, of surrogacy. Yes, we allow surrogacy right now in the United States, but if it's your body, do you have the right to charge for it? So Hagar has a child with Abraham for Sarah. That's the original surrogacy story in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And when that came up to the modern day, courts actually were very protective of the woman who bore the child. So we had the famous Baby M case in the 80s in New York City that gave rights to the birth mother over the woman who had contributed over the family that was the intended family. But a lot has changed since the 1980s. Now it's possible for just surrogate to carry an embryo where both the egg and the sperm come from the intended couple. So there's no genetic relationship between the surrogate and the baby. And what that has meant is a real sea change in gestational surrogacy in the country. So now in most states, it's now suddenly legal to have have women be paid for carrying a baby to term. It's not legal, for example, in Michigan. In 2021, it just became legal in New York. Until 2021, New Yorkers went across the river to New Jersey to hire gestational surrogates. So the question for surrogacy today is very much, how do we set the dimmer switch between no, it's illegal, and yes, it's an ordinary transaction, to actually take care of the really profound and deep questions that come up with a woman carrying a baby for another couple. Let's move on to the final justification that you mentioned. Here we're talking about labor. The fruits of our labor may belong to us. How does this justification play out? Maybe you can walk us through an example in, I don't know, copyright law to get us started. Labor is one of the most powerful and primitive stories we have about ownership. It also goes back to the Bible. You reap what you sow. There's nothing more powerful than that. It's the intuition uh, for why we protect artists with copyright and why we protect inventors with patents. But in my view, that uh, the copyright place that you asked about, this is an area where we often have too much protection, that that instinct is so powerful that it leads us to overprotect property with very costly consequences for our culture. How do you mean? Well, let me give you an example. 
copyright term used to be, uh, when it first started out in 1789, was 14 years. And if you were still alive, you could renew it for 14 more. That term has grown and grown to the point where a few decades ago, it lasted your entire life and some years beyond. But then Disney realized that, Mickey, that Walt Disney had been dead for a certain amount of time, the guy who created Mickey Mouse. And that was Disney Company's most valuable asset. So they, they said, okay, what can we do to give ourselves more Mickey protection? They went to Congress and basically bought 20 more years, a statute that extended the term of all copyrights for 20 more years, Mickey Mouse very much included. And then when Mickey Mouse was about to expire again, around the year 2003 or 2004, Disney went back to Congress a second time and said, give us 20 more years. So now Mickey doesn't expire until 2024. This is the so-called Mickey Mouse Protection Act. This is the so-called Mickey Mouse Protection Act. It was an outrage. It basically took from the public, not just Mickey, but all of American culture, the great flowering of American culture from the 20s and 30s and 40s that would have fallen into the public domain 40 years ago. And then Mickey stopped it. And then 20 years and Mickey stopped it. We've lost access to, there's actually more stuff in print now, more available now culture from before 1920, from the late 1800s, than there is from 1920 to the 1940s and 50s. All of that culture was blocked by having too much property rights. So that you reap what you sow intuition, it's such a powerful intuition, but it can also lead you astray. It can also lead to an example of overprotection of property when actually what society is much better off having somewhat less. And then here we're talking again about one of the more regressive property justifications. You mentioned with the land that it, it can be a magnet for wealth. Here again, we're, we're allowing perhaps too much wealth to be harvested. Exactly. So this is the point that is one of the threads that we talk about in the book. And it's really one of the most important themes that I think listeners should be really aware of is that there is no natural understanding of what ownership is. It feels natural. You, you go to Starbucks and you wait in line and you feel that, you know, that's how it works. But then you notice, well, that's not the only way it works. There's people who cut around you because they have an app and they go and get their drink from the barista. Once you start to notice that, you realize that for all of these stories, ownership is very much up for grabs. And people who are savvy, and Disney is one of the savviest owners of intellectual property out there, people who are savvy can turn each of these familiar rules uh, for their benefit. And if people aren't noticing, you actually end up, in this case, losing access to a tremendous amount of really some of the best creations of American popular culture. Professor Heller, thank you for taking the time and for joining us today. It is such a pleasure to be here. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.